One of my favorite stories that I've ever heard is by C.S. Lewis. He wrote a series called The Chronicles of Narnia, and there's a book in there called The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And in this story, just to very briefly summarize it, there are four children, Peter, Susan, Lucy, and Edmund. And they find themselves in this enchanted fantasy land. And in this fantasy land, it is always winter, but never Christmas. This is because the evil white witch has deemed it so. She has taken over the land and she controls it and she calls it to be perpetual winter every day. And those who would dare to oppose her find themselves stricken. And many of them are turned to stone. So there's great fear within the land. But as the children begin to talk to some of the, the residents there, particularly Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, they hear about someone. They hear about the true king, the righteous king, the powerful king, the rightful king. His name is Aslan. And Aslan one day will return. And it's told, been told even that Aslan is this very day on the move. He's coming this way and in, in some of the outer parts of the kingdom already are they seeing the flowers begin to bloom as the snow begins to melt? Already is the grass beginning to turn green? And it is told that there are animals that had been turned to stone that are now fully alive and restored. When the children hear this story, it resonates within their heart and their spirit. And they know it must be true, this figure, Aslan, this righteous king, this rightful king, this powerful, beautiful king is on the move. And they know it's real. They know it's true. And as they learn about him, as they learn about his power, but yet his grace, but yet his justice, and they hear all the mighty deeds that Aslan has done, their hearts fall in love with him so when he finally does appear, they feel like they already know him because they do. Their love has already preceded his very appearance because they felt his presence. They knew it was real. They knew it was true. They knew he was alive. So when he comes on the scene, it's easy for them to follow him because they had already determined in their heart that he was real and true. And something within their spirit let them know that he would be the ultimate king. That he would have the final authority. And that he would restore all things to their perfect order and their perfect nature. Now, C.S. Lewis didn't do that by coincidence. And if you know the whole narrative of the Bible and the gospel story... You see the themes. But what I want us to concentrate on today is how the children felt when they heard that phrase. Aslan is on the move. Aslan 
is on the move. He's moving. He's coming. His presence is already being felt. Three of the children had great joy and anticipation, and one of them was a little scared because he had betrayed the others. When you hear that God is on the move, what spirit does that evoke within you? When you hear that Jesus is coming, what does that cause you to think? We're going to look at the Gospel of Mark. And the Gospel of Mark, I think, is doing just what C.S. Lewis was doing with Aslan. It's giving the picture and the understanding that God is on the move. Jesus is on the move. Jesus has been healing people. He's been casting out demons. He's healed a man of leprosy. He's restored Peter's mother-in-law. He is on the move. He's calling disciples. He's on the move. He's working. We went through the Gospel of Matthew. We highlighted the Gospel of Matthew that talked about the kingship of Jesus, that he is the, the one and true king and that he has ushered in his kingdom. And then we see that Jesus is a servant in the Gospel of Mark. And I want to give you three key passages that I think help us to completely understand the book of Mark and to find us what the Mark, book of Mark is about. The first one's found in Mark chapter 1, verse 15. This is the first time we see Jesus speaking. This is the first message that he's given And this is the message, the Logos that he's giving. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, the redemption, the salvation message of God. The time is fulfilled. Jesus is here. God is on the move. Jesus is here. The time is fulfilled. The time is now. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That Jesus is the true king, the true Messiah. The next passage tells us his purpose. And it's found in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10 and verse... uh, Excuse me. Let's go to Mark chapter 10, if you don't mind. Verse 45. 10, 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. I.e., you see our basin over here. Of what a servant would have used, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Here's the purpose. Jesus came to serve and to give his life. That's the gospel. He came to give his life. He came and lived the life that we should have lived and died the death that we should have died. So here he is, and he's giving his life. He will give his life, and he states that purpose. And then in Mark chapter 15, verse 39, toward the end of the gospel, a Gentile centurion, a Roman, who didn't know the prophecies, who didn't know the Bible, didn't know the background, as he stands before Jesus facing him, he saw in the way that he breathed his last breath, and he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. Truly, he is divine. That revelation is given to him by God Almighty. Now, with that understanding, let's look at the story and let's look at the theology behind Mark chapter 2, verse 1 
Again, Jesus has been very busy. He's been working. He's been healing. He's been calling disciples. He's been preaching. And we pick up here in chapter 2, verse 1. And when he returned to Capernaum, and by the way, Capernaum is his ministry base. Of course, he was born in Bethlehem, fled to Egypt, uh, came back and was raised in Nazareth. But now he's starting his ministry, and he's chose his, chosen Capernaum because this is a key city. It's next to the Via Mare, which is the road of the sea, the main passage, the main road uh, that nation, literally nations would have walked in between continents. And so it is a place where they are, are taxing. It's a place where people come to eat and people come on their journey. And it's where Peter uh, was living at the time. And a matter of fact, we have a slide of Capernaum. Let me show you Capernaum today. I was there just a few years ago, and some of you have been there. And uh, the building closest to us here is the synagogue. This is where the synagogue would have been. So it's this, this building right here. I had the chance to walk in there. And then the building right behind it, the one that's kind of a, a, a stop sign shape, kind of a, um, is that called an octagon? Uh, I hope so. I was going to say that, and then everybody's going to think I was ignorant. But anyway, an octagon shape. By the way, I'm looking at a, a sixth and seventh graders so that are they're telling me what to do. So I, I'm sure I'm right. Uh, an octagon shape, that's Peter's house, okay? And... Peter's house is probably, honestly, probably a little bigger than it really was then uh, because all the tourists come and, and look at it. But you can see the close proximity from the synagogue to Peter's house. And by the way, Peter's house was uh, not just a shack. Uh, I think sometimes we think of, uh, of all the disciples being really poor. We know Matthew wasn't poor. And Peter was probably an upper-middle-class fisherman. He had people that were working for him. The Sea of Galilee was uh, very prosperous for fishermen who were good at their trade. And there he's in this area. So he's got a decent-sized home. He's not a wealthy man, but he's got a decent-sized home. This is where he lives, and this is where our story is transpiring. I don't know if you knew that, but that's, uh, most scholars believe that this is where the story of the paralytic transpires. So, continuing with our passage in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. In verse and 1, it said, when he returned from Capernaum after those days, he reported that he was at home. We just looked at the home that he was in. He's with Peter. Peter's home is kind of the base, so to speak. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. So the, pl- the, the, the house of Peter is completely packed. There are people all around outside. It is so tightly packed that you can't even get to the door is basically what it's communicating here. You couldn't even get to the door. And he was preaching the what? The word to them. The message, the logos. What did we say that was? Go back to Mark chapter 1, verse 15. It tells us it's the gospel. It's the kingdom is at hand repent and believe, okay? So that's the message that he's preaching to them, that it's referring to. Verse 3, and they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men, a paralytic. Now, we don't know a lot about this paralytic, but we at least know this. He at least cannot walk, and it appears like it must be more significant than that because he doesn't have people, he doesn't have crutches, he doesn't have people holding him up, he is literally prone. He's literally, he's lying down, and they are bringing him uh, on a mat, so to speak. All right? So that's what his friends are doing. We'll talk about what great friends they are in just a moment here. But they bring the paralytic, and the paralytic probably can't do a whole lot more than maybe raise his hand. Perhaps he can't even speak. So he is in a desperate state. The Bible says in verse 4, And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, 
they removed the roof above him. Now, that's, that's significant. We, we believe this is Peter's house. And even in that day, it's not proper etiquette uh, to, to put a hole in somebody's roof. Uh, but this is how significant, this is how faithful, this is how called uh, these friends seem to be to make sure that he has the opportunity to see Jesus and be touched by Jesus. And when they had made an opening, they let the, bow da- they let the bed down on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, I think that's interesting, Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic. Now, when Jesus saw their faith, he's certainly talking about the paralytic's faith, but he's also talking about the faith of the friends. That's why I think it's so important that we pray for our friends. We pray for our neighbors. We pray for those who don't need know Christ. We pray for those who have need in our life because God is working in and through those prayers, in and through that faith. And it says, when Jesus saw their faith, what does he say to the paralytic? He says, son, your sins, and by the way, he uses a very endearing term, son. Um, It's very likened to the passage. If you go back, you remember the little girl that Jesus healed that had died, and he goes into her room. She's, She's died, and they've told her she died. And he kneels down, and he touches her. And you remember what he says? He says, Talitha kum. Talitha kum. You know what that is? Honey, sweetheart. It's time to get up. It's time to get up. By the way, this is another sermon. I think that's a picture of what it looks like for the believer. I don't believe in soul sleep or anything like that, but I think that's a picture of when we die and before we're in the presence of Christ. Many of you have had loved ones that you've lost in recent years. And those who know Christ Jesus, I believe what's happening is he's going, time to get up. Time to get up. It's a very enduring and sweet term that he uses here as he says, Son, your sins are forgiven. Wow, that is a strange response. These men, these four friends, they got their friend together. He's a paralytic. They come up, they, they, they realize they can't get into the house, so they go up the ladder around the house. They get up on the, on the roof. They tear a hole in the roof. They put him down. And they know he's healed other people, but instead he says, your sins are forgiven. That's a radical statement. Does Jesus know what he's doing here? I believe he does. First of all, remember where it said he sees their faith. I think it's interesting that this man, we don't have any recorded words from him. He's not saying the sinner's prayer. He's not going through some formula. He's not saying the right words, the magic words that are written out in the Bible for us for people to say. There aren't magic words that are written out for people to say, by the way. Okay? There are no right words. Okay? We have models, and they're terrific, and I think we should use them. But here's the great thing about the divine God of the universe. He's a heart reader. Jesus is a heart reader as well as a mind reader. He sees the faith. He hears, and for all we know, this paralytic can't speak. But you know what? That wouldn't matter. I think of times where the grace of God is on the move without people speaking. I think about the time where it's a a deaf mute who can't speak. Jesus heals him. I think about the 
the prodigal son who's repentant. He's coming to the father and he's going to ask forgiveness. But before he can ask forgiveness, the father's already embraced him and accepted him. You know why? Because God sees the heart. He knows what you're going to say before you have to say it. He reads your heart. Our words are merely a reflection of what our heart should be, but sometimes our words are just words. I, I, I won't quote the passage, but I love, if you want to go back just for another reference and look at Romans 8, 26 and 27, where Paul talks about the Spirit interceding with groaning that's too deep for words. We don't know the words. We don't know how to pray. Maybe we're so overcome in grief or despair or we're so heavy that the Spirit makes intercession on our behalf. And I believe that's exactly what Jesus is doing right here. He sees the faith of a man who may or may not be able to speak. He sees his heart and he says, your sins are forgiven. You know why he did that? Because that was the man's greatest need. We all have a felt need. Everyone in this room, if you're over the age of 40, you have something that hurts or doesn't work as well as it used to. Okay? Every one of you got there's something that you go, I wish this was I wish I had more hair, wish I could see better, wish I could lose weight, I wish I didn't have these eggs. We we all have some of those. That's not our greatest need. Sometimes it feels like our greatest need. Our greatest need is having our sins forgiven. That's what our greatest need is because that will be for eternity. This is temporary. Eternity is forever. So our greatest need is to have our sins forgiven. So Jesus goes to his greatest need. And then the Bible says this. Now, remember I told you Jesus is a mind reader and a heart reader. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there, and they're not saying anything either, by the way. Questioning in their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone. Nobody can forgive sins but God alone. And you know what? They're right. Only God can forgive your sins. By the way, I think it's worth noting that let's say that I have, there's, there's three of us here together. There's Mike, Bob, and, and Ron here, okay? And let's say Mike slugs Bob and hits him in the face, and he's bleeding, and it hurts, and I go, it's okay, I forgive you. What's he thinking? He's thinking, you didn't even get hit. What are you, you, don't have, you don't have the permission. You don't have the authority to forgive. But see what Jesus is saying. All sin is directly a sin against me. It's like David said in Psalm 50. Against you, O God, and you only have I sinned. All sin is against God. It can be against others as well. And so Jesus, having the authority, having the power, does forgive. And he does have that authority. He is God. And the Bible says, and immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that thus they questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your heart? And then he makes this statement in verse 9. Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise up and take your bed and walk? Which is easier? Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or take up your bed and walk? That's a trick question, by the way, because I'm sure they all thought, well, yeah, because you can prove if you can get up. If he gets up and walks, well, that's a big deal. I mean, nobody can do that. But Jesus, actually, it's 
The bigger miracle is their sins are forgiven because you know how their sins are going to be forgiven. Jesus is going to live the life that we should have lived. and He's going to die the death that we should have died. He's going to have his hands and feet nailed to a cross and his blood's going to pour, therefore covering our sin. And that's the reason that he can forgive our sin, that he forg- that's how he forgives our sin. So that's the greater miracle. That is the greater act. But that you may know that the Son of Man, by the way, he uses this term, the Son of Man, that's found a few times in Daniel, a few times in Scripture. Um, but Jesus uses this title more than any other title. Son of Man, Ben Adam is literally what it is Ben, Son, Adam, Man, the ultimate Son of Man. But we see in Daniel chapter 7 that this is a prophetic figure, this is a messianic figure. It was very difficult for the Jews that day. There were a lot of debate and uh, a lot of differences of opinions uh, about who the Messiah would be. Uh, Many believe there's there's going to have to be two Messiahs because one would have to be a militaristic Messiah. He would have to be more of a man, and then there could be one of maybe a more divine nature. But uh, that was was not even agreed upon. There were lots of different views and lots of different um, philosophies and interpretations. But here's Jesus using this term, the Son of Man. And he has the power to forgive sins, and he has the power to heal, and to do all these miracles. And he's preaching the message of repentance. Why? Because he was fully God and fully man. The Jews didn't really have a construct, so to speak, to put that. They didn't have a paradigm where that fit. But here he is. He's deconstructing their understanding of what Messiah would be. He's fulfilling all the prophecies. He's preaching that the, the word, the kingdom is at hand. He stated, he will state in Mark chapter 10, that I've come to give my life as a ransom for many. And then a centurion, a Gentile centurion, will profess the deity of Christ, that he's the son of God. The son of man helps them to understand both. He is both the son of God and the son of man. He's fully human and he's fully God. The big seminary word is hypostatic union. But God is fully man. He's fully God. And the Bible says, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He says to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. That is such a rich passage, we could spend a lot more time upon it, but I hope you understand what's transpiring, that Jesus is on the move, that he's healing, that he's restoring, that he's preaching the message that the kingdom is at hand. He's on the move, just as he is today. Let me give us three little practical applications that we can glean from this passage today to go along with this, the theology of this passage. The first one is the importance of friends. The importance of community, of friends and family, how important it is. You know, most of the time, God uses either friends or family to bring people to Christ. Have you ever noticed that? I mean, there are some exceptions, but most of the time, that's how God works. That's why it's important to have good friends, by the way. So what is a friend? Well, I think we see three three things, three characteristics that um, the friends of this paralytic, that they enact. The first one we see they are men of compassion. They are friends of compassion. They're people of compassion. They care. Their friend is hurting and they care. And that's what a real friend does. When you hurt, they care. It grieves their heart. It grieves their spirit. Number two, they were faithful. 
They were faithful. They told their friend, we're going to take you to Jesus. And when they saw the crowd, they didn't go, oh, it's a really big crowd. We're going to have to leave. This is a little bit much here. I mean, they didn't do the way that we maybe do our kids when we take them to Chuck E. Cheese and we see there's like 1,000 kids and 15 birthday parties. You know what? We're not going to go today. We're going to come back another time. Let's go get some ice cream. Let's go get pancakes, but, you know, Chuck E. Cheese is really close. It's really crowded today. We'll just wait and come back another time. There's people all coming out the door. Honey, it's just not going to work today. They didn't Chuck E. Cheese him. They said, we're going to find a way. They were faithful. They literally climbed the roof, and they must have agreed, hey, we'll cover the cost of the expenses of of putting a hole in Peter's roof. Yeah, I'm sure he'll understand. I don't know how his mother-in-law feel about all this, but I'm sure we could pay for it. We'll come back. We'll restore it. They were faithful. They were tenacious. Third, they were servants. They didn't just talk about it. They weren't just faithful, but they served. They went and they got him. They picked him up. They recognized they were going to have to carry him. They carried him. They put him through the roof. And they were there. They were there to serve. That's what a real friend does. They serve. You serve. Those are three characteristics. You ever want to know if you're a friend or if you have a friend? Are there people in your life whom you're compassionate to and they're compassionate to you? They get it when you're hurting. They're faithful. If they tell you they're going to do something, if there's something you need, you can count on them. And number three, they're servants. They will do whatever's necessary. There's not any task that's too small, too large, too hard, too humiliating. They would serve you if they possibly could. That's a picture of French. That's, that's a picture of what this man had. Then the faith. They had faith. The man had faith. And I can just see him kind of reaching out his hand to Jesus. That's all he can do because he's on this stretcher. And we know he never speaks, so we don't even know if he can. He never even says, thank you, Jesus. Maybe he can't speak. We don't, we don't know what's going on. But I have to believe he's, he's reaching out his hand for Jesus. Jesus sees the faith that it took. He sees the man in need who believes this must be the Messiah. This must be the one who can heal me. This must be the one of whom the prophecy has been given, of all the sermons that I've ever heard. This is him. This is him. I believe. Jesus heals him of his greatest needs, of his sin. Then he heals him of his physical maladies. Are you reaching your hand out today to Jesus? Or maybe your hand says, my hand's really busy. Really, I got a really busy hand. I can't do anything right now. Very, very busy. I'll get back to you later, Jesus. Or maybe you think, my hand's dirty. You know, I, I, I send a lot and sometimes I still do it. I'm, I'm too dirty. Jesus, let me clean myself up. Give me a little time. I need to clean up. Or maybe your sin, maybe, it, maybe your hand is, um, it's kind of delicate. Jesus, I, I'm okay to say I believe in you, but... Jesus, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to offend anybody. And um, I don't really want to do anything, to be honest with you. I'll just be happy to say I believe and I'll be at home if you need me. And matter of fact, I may not pick up the phone um, unless it's something I want to do. Very delicate. Or what's more likely, maybe your hand's just apathetic. Uh, gospel. Uh, yeah, I got neighbors that probably don't know. Uh feed the hunger. I'm not coming up here. I don't have, that's Saturday. I watch football or whatever it is. I'm just apathetic. Just, you know, just didn't really stir me. Didn't really do much for me. 
I'm so thankful that, according to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, that Jesus said, but the Son of Man came to serve. And he gave his life as a ransom to many. What does that tell me? That we give our lives to him. Lord, here's my hand. Yes, it's dirty. Yes, I've made a lot of mistakes. And yes, I don't know a lot. But Lord, here it is. Take me, save me, and use me. Here's my hand. What are you doing with the hand that God's given you today? Have you given it to him? Are you giving it to him daily as believers in Christ Jesus? I encourage you to consider this. God is on the move. I shared some of this before, but I just reread it this week, some, some latest information, that God is on the move in our world. We hear about the wars, about the famines. We hear about the earthquakes and the tornadoes and the hurricanes, and those are absolutely true. But at the same time that God is redeeming those in those areas, do you realize that more people are coming to Christ in the Mideast than any other time in history? More Muslims are having dreams and visions. Nepal, well, let me back up. China, it is predicted in the next 15 to 20 years, China will have more Christians than any other country in the world, including the United States and then including North America. China, China, who their stated... Uh, their shaded philosophy is we are an atheist country. That's what the government states. We are an atheist country with no respect to any God or religion. And yet Christianity is exploding as God is on the move. Doc Henry, who's a member of our church, serves over there six months out of the year. He's blind. He goes over there six months of the year teaching scriptures because of the movement of God. It's happening in Cuba, as Randy mentioned, as Randy's taking trips over there. And some of you have gone to Cuba where we're seeing unprecedented revival. You know what country in the world right now is the fastest growing percentage-wise in Christianity? It's Nepal. That's, that's another country that we support. Um, we support missionaries in, in Nepal. And it was understood in 1951 they did a, a survey and they came back with zero people who identified as Christians. Not a single person in their identification identified themselves as a Christian in 1951. Today, there are over 2 million Christians in Nepal alone. Iran, we've got some uh, mission organizations that think Christianity is growing the fastest anywhere in the country of Iran. But because it's extremely difficult to count, we, we can't exactly put numbers on it. Uh, but we know this, that people are coming to Christ in unprecedented numbers. God is on the move. Africa, back in the 1900s, was somewhere around 5% Christian. Now it's 50%. God is on the move. He is moving. He is speaking. He is transforming. And just like Aslan coming to the land, we begin to feel the effects. And when we hear the name Jesus, it erupts something with our heart and our mind, either a fear or a need to confess or an excitement and an anticipation. But know this, my friend, Jesus is alive and well, and he's moving. And he's moving to work in and through his body. First of all, do you know him? Do you believe that he lived the life that you should have lived, that he's the, he was the perfect man, yet he was God at the same time. And because of the requirements of Scripture, there must be the shedding of blood for sins to be forgiven. He shed, he willingly gave his life and was crucified upon the cross, and he was placed in the grave. But on the third day again, he rose. God said, son, time to get up. Hey, 
That's what you want to hear one day when you're gone. Honey, son, time to get up. Do you know him as Savior? Have you put your trust and your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? And if you have, what are you doing with the message? Who are you praying for that does not know Christ? I was talking with someone in my neighborhood this week, and we were talking about that. And um, I shared before with them, and I was talking to them. They said, you know, honestly, I got an addiction. And I had another friend that had an addiction. We started talking about it. And he's been going to this recovery group. And I've just been listening to people and I realize Jesus is real. And when I hear the name Jesus now, it, it just sparks something in my spirit. And I know it's true. He's drawing me that way. I know it's true. You know why? Because God's on the move. Are you opening your eyes? Are you giving him your hand? Are you saying, Lord... I receive you, I accept you. Lord, use me. Who are you praying for? Who are you investing? Where are you investing for the kingdom? And who are you inviting? Let's pray together. God, we so thank you that you are on the move. That you are not still or quiet, but you are moving. And just because we don't always recognize you or see you doesn't mean that you're not moving. Lord, give us eyes to see. I pray for revival amongst us as Christians that you would stir our hearts. Lord, I thank you for our brothers and sisters who literally are suffering for the faith in, mid, in, uh, in the Mideast as well as in Asia. But where, Lord, you were on the move and you were transforming and changing lives and hearts that were stoned. You're restoring them to the life they were intended to live. And Lord, I pray for the hearts of stone within Flower Mound and Louisville and Lantana and our surrounding area. God, would you move in our hearts. Lord, I pray as you convict us of sin that we would be stirred. For those who don't know you, God, that you would draw them. And for those whom, Lord, we have friends that you've given us that relation. I pray, Lord, that we would be compassionate, that we would be faithful. And, Lord, I pray that you would use us as friends of the gospel. And that we would share it with those, Lord, who don't know you. So I thank you, God, for this wonderful opportunity this morning. Stir our hearts for your glory. Amen.